0: Um, A couple of weeks ago I talked about being stuck and uh, what I've learned since then is that a lot of you are, because you said so. Uh, you either wrote, called, stopped, said something to me and said, Man, that perfectly describes my situation right now. It is all motion without progress. It's all cost without benefit. I'm doing the same thing and I'm doing it harder, but I don't seem to be getting any forward motion right now. And I don't know how to get out of this. And I, first, I don't want to minimize that because I underst- I've been stuck many times, and I will be again, and I know every time that you are, It requires care and advice that is peculiar to each situation. So I can't stand up here and just blast away promises or statements and think that that's going to do the trick. That being said, there are patterns, aren't there, to getting stuck and there's patterns to getting unstuck. And so what I was trying to do a couple of weeks ago was simply to identify some of the patterns of getting unstuck. I think I listed six different things that we could do whenever we hit a, like a bog and we can't go forward that God might use to give us traction. I told you two weeks ago the key was to find traction, to build momentum, and then that will take us often out of it. That's half of the story. Today's the other half. I was uh, 22 years old when driving a Ford Mustang first hour I said, "Honda Mustang," and was told afterwards that that one of the two companies were cussing <laughs> um, It was a Ford Mustang five-speed on the floor nice little car, and I'm flying through the Irish hills as I say, 22 unmarried, headed down to Marion where I was going to meet a party. My fiance, Lori was, was going to have a birthday party. I was going to surprise her and so it was a cold, wintry night, real dark at night, real late, and flying over these hills full of snow, can hardly see the road. I remembered somebody told me if you go over the crest of a hill in a five-speed and you want to manage control, always downshift, into a lower gear because it gives you more control. I should say from the beginning, if you're headed over a hill with snow on the ground in a five-speed, never downshift into a lower gear. That is a terrible mistake. The second I did that, the tail end of the car whirled out from behind me and I started doing 360 all the way down that hill. I remember clearly seeing a tree come closer and closer every time I swirled around I remember thinking at that moment, wait, this is how people die. And then I remember thinking, this might be it. I'm only 22. Oh, man. And right then, bam, I ran into a snowbank. Never hit the tree, still don't know how. But I hit it with such force that I buried that little Ford Mustang into that snowbank. And after a few minutes of clearing my head, got out and started looking at the situation. And I learned immediately that there are times when you can get so stuck, you cannot get yourself out. I did not have a carpet or sand or gravel, shovel. I didn't have a prayer of getting myself out of that snowbank. I clearly needed help. And this is... Highway 12 in Michigan, I don't even think God goes down that road, but once a year, they're never going to find me. And so I got out and thought, I suppose I just got to walk, and I looked up, just as I started to walk, I looked up, and there was another car slammed into the ditch about 50 yards up. I went, thank God, there's somebody as stupid as I am. And then right behind the car was a tow truck this is providence (laughs) and so I went over to the driver and I said when you're through uh, pulling this guy out would you how much would it cost to pull me out he goes 50 bucks I don't have 50 bucks man so I said how about if I just give you all the money in my wallet there you'll be rich and I'm poor well you'll be poor I'll be poorer." he said how much do you have I said like 25 bucks he said I'll take it all so I gave him my 25 bucks and uh, he pulled me out just like that hooked up a chain pulled me out moral moral there are times when you will get so stuck that you need someone else to come and pull you out all six of the things I told you two weeks ago are things you could do but there are situations where they won't help you you need somebody else so if you're used to like handling your own business just get used to the fact right now that probably somebody else out there has the chain or the way to pull you out so in snowy states, you'll always see cars pulled alongside the road when it's full of snow. Flashers are on, somebody is out of his car, and he's helping push somebody out. And if you wonder why would you leave a warm car and wear dress shoes into a snowbank, it's probably because he's been there himself one or two times, and he knows what it's like, so he's going to help. Fifteen years ago, we just moved to Marion, and uh, I was driving a 1994 GMC Jimmy. This is a beast of a vehicle, a four-wheel high and low and auto and manual. There wasn't anything it could not get out of. I tried. I'd run into banks. I'd run into mud, put it in low, pull out. This thing is an animal. I loved this car. Got about three miles to the gallon, but I loved this car. So on one night, we're driving down the bypass, and apparently Eaton, four-wheel-drive GNC Jimmys need gas. Because somewhere in between Zurcher's and KFC, this thing started to cough, and it just died. And My wife was in the car, and she looked at me and said, what's the problem? I said, I think I ran out of gas. She proceeds to roll her eyes and wonder how it is a 42-year-old man with a full-time job runs out of gas. You lead a church. You can't get gas. I said, "The the, the gauges broke. Well, how long has it been broke? A long time. (laughs) Why didn't you fix it? I didn't want to spend the money. I had to fix other things. It's a 94 GMC. So she said, all right, you push, I'll drive. Thanks. 94 GMC Jimmy is not a car, it's a meteorite it weighs about four thousand pounds per square inch and I don't know whether you have noticed it or not but in between the intersection between Zurchers and KFC and the McClure station a little ways away is a slight incline you'd say it seems flat to me Uh uh-uh push it once and you will see so I'm behind this beast of a car pushing, no sooner do I get back there and I can't move this sucker and all of a sudden, up comes a car behind me, puts the flashers on, three college students jump out and go, Hey Pastor Steve! (laughs) Do you need some help? I thought, no, I need a hole to crawl in, so they got in behind me, And the second they got in behind me, we were able to push that car quickly, easily, um, all the way into McClures, where I could get gas on my own. I remember jumping in the car and my wife saying, "Weren't those just the nicest guys?" I thought, "Yeah." (laughs) Note to self: when you are stuck, sometimes. You will need somebody to pull you out, and sometimes it isn't one person, it's a team of people. That's important. Let me tell you why. Because our society today is wired for tow trucks, not for teams of people. It is wired to send people along to help you whenever you get in trouble. They will help you out. They are trained, motivated, well-paid professionals whose purpose for stopping is to help you out. But they don't know you and they don't travel with you. They are there on call when you need them. And there is an army of professionals in the American culture right now, but that's not the same thing as having people who travel with you and know you, whose relationship with you is bigger than just getting stuck. When you get helped every time you're stuck, but you don't know the people who are helping me, and you don't have conversations with them outside of getting stuck, that's a tow truck. that ain't three friends and our culture right now is wired in such a way that people are going down the roads of life in their cars alone and out of the goodness of their heart will pull over every now and then to help us out I'm calling for something more Sherry Turkle is a social scientist who actually teaches in a tech school. She writes in her book, Alone Together, digital connections, listen to this, offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other, even as we are tethered to each other. As we instant message, email, text, and Twitter, technology redraws the boundaries between intimacy and solitude. Tethered to technology, we're shaken when the world unplugged does not signify, does not satisfy. We build a following on Facebook and then wonder to what degree our followers are truly friends. We recreate ourselves as online persona. We give ourselves new bodies, new homes, new names, new jobs, even new romances. Yet suddenly, in the half-light of virtual community, we sometimes feel utterly alone. As we distribute ourselves, we may abandon ourselves. Sometimes people experience no sense of having communicated even after hours of connection, and they report feeling close even when they're paying little attention. (laughs) In all of this, she says, there's a nagging question. Does virtual intimacy actually degrade real intimacy should it ever come along? Alone together, she says. We're together, but alone. The biblical antidote for this is one another. Only in the Bible, that's not two words, it's one. And it's an interesting word. The antidote for being alone together is to be in community one another. What it means is a deep, symbiotic, interdependent, mutual relationship with someone. Listen closely. Wherein one person gives to the other the very thing he needs himself. and in giving it to the other person, he finds it, in return. Think about this, it's counterintuitive, because the moment you feel a deficiency of anything in your life, The tendency is for me to reach out and pull someone into that deficiency, and so if I'm a shy, introverted person, then I want to reach out and find people who are interested in me. No, one another says if I'm shy and introverted, I have to give to others what I hope to get in return, and it is in the process of giving it, I actually get it. People who are poor try to find rich people to come and take them on. People who lack energy, they're exhausted, they're weary, they're looking for people who are full of energy so they can like use some of that energy and one another says that's never the way to find it the way to find it is to give to the other person the thing that you most need because if you need it you probably value it and if you value it you have some inclination toward it so you're able to provide it however poorly the very thing you need you see it it goes back and forth It isn't how do I pull somebody into my situation, it's how do I come out of my situation and get into somebody else and an odd thing happens, I find it. Now what most people know but nobody pays much attention to, is that the language of one another is all the way through the New Testament, depending on the translation that you read and how you count them. There are 59 one another's in the New Testament. Honor one another love one another, accept one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another, encourage one another, build one another up. All of these in the New Testament, 59 of them. Now six of them are negative or apophatic. It simply means don't do this. So don't provoke one another. So if you take the 59 and you eliminate the six negative ones, it means there are 53 positive, one another's, in the New Testament, and this becomes the language of community. You still tracking? Seventeen of those all say the same thing, love. Seventeen out of the fifty-three say, love one another. So somewhere in the middle of this universe of one another's, there is a dominant one that's like a hub, and it is to love one another. Now, so you know, love in the New Testament is an unmotivated love. Let me say it differently. It never loves another person for what is in the other person, even potential. It loves the other person for what is in oneself. The love of the New Testament is closer to the love of a mother towards her children. I mean, does she really, does she really have to work at this? Do they have to be a certain kind of person or kid for her to, no. She loves because it is her nature to love that which came from her. And so it sends to say, if you could find a community of people, I mean, that loved each other the way that mothers love their children naturally, you'd probably get unstuck. This love never recognizes value it creates value never loves you because you have the potential you don't have potential until it loves you and it just brings it out of you you become better you live up to it so then there are 36 left and those 36 one another's can be clustered in three different ways. One of them comes under the phrase encourage. Another cluster of these comes under the phrase, or like it, teach. A third cluster comes under the phrase serve. There are others that are hanging out there, but most of them fit into these three categories. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Accept one another. Build up one another. Encourage one another. All of that has to do with embracing another person Welcoming another person, but helping another person move forward. The word literally means to urge forward, to propel forward, to come alongside someone and help that person move forward. By the way, there's an obstacle to this in the Western culture, and it's the obstacle that it's this. We have professionalized this in the Western culture we have turned the ministry of encouragement into pastoral ministry and into therapists and professional psychologists and we've gotten the idea that you have to have a special knowledge that nobody else has you have to have a degree in the wall you have to have something else it's a secret word I don't know what to say but the professionals they know what to say and so we sometimes pull back The best advice I ever heard on this someone once said to me there are two things that really drive a lot of people's maladjustments. One of them he says is fear and the other one is discouragement. Fear is intimidation it's inferiority, it's inadequacy, it's the feeling that I'm not good enough for either you or the situation and disappointment is weariness, it's fatigue, it's being tired, it's being frustrated over a long period of time. Now watch what he said these two things whether fear or disappointment reside in the soul of a person but they are well protected by layers of bravado and busyness and all sorts of Disorder, things that we do to keep people outside of the real central nerve. And so what happens in the American culture is when we greet people with like greeting card cheap phrases, how are things gone? And we just they bounce off of these things. They just ricochet. What is needed, he says, is someone who knows how to penetrate that shell to find out what is really the fear and what People are really discouraged over. You say, well, how do you do that? Two things, so far as I know. One is we have to learn to listen better than we do. Most of us just waiting to speak. We're not really listening. We're waiting for them to stop talking so we can talk some more. And the other one is we have to empathize. We have to be able to feel what the other person can feel. And you guys, if we can listen well, and if we can empathize with what people are feeling at that moment, you would be shocked at how well you can help them. I look back at the people that have encouraged me, and with very few exceptions they were almost never the professionals think about it they were people who were just there and they listened well gary he's here this morning he walks into lowes about three four months ago guy yells out gay really loud and he's the one i'm doing he's like oh man you know like he's on a tight schedule and i got to get home told his wife he'd be home Man doesn't even make it over to him before he says, "I was diagnosed with cancer." Remember? All right, this just changed. So Gary, he's a businessman. You're not a counselor. He's like, "Well, I can't handle that. I don't have a degree." He's just saying, "What? Wait, I had cancer." After the man goes through the first round of everything that's happening, Gary says. I did tell my wife I would be home tonight. I've got to take this right home. Would you do me a favor? Would you get in your car and drive out to my house tonight? I want to hear the rest of the story. And then because he at one time was that person with cancer, surrounded by friends who prayed, said, before you leave, I promise you I will find an army of friends who will pray. That's it. It's not magical, it's not a silver bullet, it's not some code word, it's not the perfect phrase. It's just listening well. It's being able to put yourself in that person's situation and to disarm it. Now, can I stress one more time? If you find yourself in the category of saying, I need to be encouraged, then the way to be encouraged is to encourage. It is to go out and help other people, even though you feel like other people need to help you. One of the best ways I can think to do this is to be involved in the pastoral care of of a church setting. Now, I'm not saying be a pastor. What I'm saying is we're discovering that there is so much care that is needed in our congregation right now that you can't have somebody in every situation So what we need is an army of people, you, me, everyone, who pays more attention to the people around us. And instead of saying, how can they help, we say, how can I speak a word of encouragement into this person's life? So we've asked Alex if he would like schedule half a day and if we can get enough people, we would say, let's put everybody in a room and say, this is as much as we know about pastoral care, teaching about three, four hours, and when we're done, You know as much as we do, but the key is connecting with people. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to go every single week to four or five homes. It means there may be situations where we call you and say, Hey, look, they need somebody who's really close. What I've discovered is the people who encourage me the most are the ones who know me the most. And sometimes you're the closest person to them. Just yesterday, I was at a funeral, and I was shocked at how we went through it with almost no emotion. After, I think... 50-some years of marriage. Um, she handled it so well. And there at the cemetery with the, the casket in front of her, of her husband, Marilyn, she didn't stand up. Normally when the family stands up and thanks you and hugs you, she just sat there for a second. She just went, okay, I can't do this. I am not ready for this. I cannot do this. I went over and sat next to her, and I said, Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And here's why. Because you have an army of people around you that love you and we will not let you go. Listen to me. You will not be alone. We will not let you go. And she went. Now, in that moment, if the greatest fear is that her children are going back and she will be in a large home in the country by herself then that phrase, we will not let you go, will penetrate. But if I say something glib and I might add stupid like, this too will pass, it'll ricochet. You with me? Let's move on, and I mean move fast. There's another cluster called teach. Ephesians says, speak to one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians says, teach and admonish one another. Hebrews says, provoke or stir up. Romans says, instruct one another in these things. So there's this whole kind of teaching, but one more time, Relax, it's not what you think it is. Because the biggest obstacle to this in our culture is this. It's the disembodied head. In the Western culture, we have believed that teaching is mostly cognitive, and therefore it is mostly information that is transmitted to another person, whether knowledge or skill. And so what's happening in our culture is, it's a culture of talking heads. I mean, there's a guy, there's a guy out west, I gotta be careful as he hears this, who's, he introduces me one time as his assistant pastor at a conference. Now what, I don't know, what? And he said, yeah, this is our assistant pastor. I said, I am? He said, yeah, you work for me. I said, I do? When? He goes, Sunday nights. I said, how? He says, well, we simply play your sermons. You're the pastor of Sunday nights. That's what I'm talking about. I'm like, dude, have we met? I can't pastor your people. I don't even know your people. I can't pastor your people unless I am in the room with your people. You see, that's where it actually becomes possible. You don't have to have tons of knowledge you simply have to live with someone and you exude that knowledge Do you know that back in Bible times, you didn't go to college and take up a discipline. You followed a person and learned a trade. And while you were learning his trade or her trade, you became that kind of person. That's what rabbis were. It wasn't a series of courses where we sat you in rows and just sort of dumped information into your heads. It was we lived and we moved and we worked around you. And in the context of that, subjects came up and we said something and you learned it when you saw us model it. So you don't have to have this super educated brain to be a teacher. You simply have to be willing to go invest in someone else's life. There's lots of ways you can do this. You can get involved in small groups if you want and just sit there and while people talk, say some things yourself and talk about life and about what you've learned and what God has shown you in the scripture and you'll be surprised how you can teach. One of the easiest ways in our church right now Splash. These are children. So they're not asking you questions about the Trinity. Well, they might, but not most of the time. Most of the time, they're just asking you things that you can handle. It's a simple conversation. You sit down, the kids are around you, the information's been handed to you. While you teach the information, that's great. It's the relationships. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not really qualified to do this, man. I don't have A-plus material. This isn't A-plus material. This is B-plus material for 10 years. In the same place. So people just learn it. It's why it's hard for me to preach on the road sometimes. They don't know how to listen to me, so I don't know how to talk to them. But you know how, or you fake it. Teaching is contextual, it's relational. Now one more time, I got to tell you, if you're sitting there saying, well, I need someone who will teach me, then you need to teach. Everyone knows this. The smartest person in the room isn't the one that's been to school all these years. It's the one who always has to teach. It's why professors are so smart. They weren't born that way. They have a term paper due tomorrow in class. And by preparing for it, they actually are taught. I wouldn't be be half the follower of Jesus I am today if I didn't have to articulate it in some form to you. I'm not ashamed of that, that's just the way it is. By teaching, we learn. Yes? Here's the last one. Serve. Serve one. The biggest obstacle to this in the American culture is consumer. It's this idea that saying, you know what? I'm tired. I've worked hard all week and when I come to church what I need is for someone to just invest in me. And while I get that, that's how I go to camp. I drive down to Fairmount once or twice a week or in the week and then I get there late in case they need someone to pray. And I slip in the back, in case they need someone to pray. And then I sit way in the back and I watch what happens on the platform. And then when it's over, I get up and leave. You say, you really do that? Yep. Yep. I like it. It's fun. I love to watch that dude up there work up a sweat preaching. I know what that feels like. It's nice he's working tonight. But that isn't my community, people. The camp meeting was not designed to be my community. It's not possible. It meets one time a year. The church is my community. When I start coming to church the way I go to camp, I become a consumer. One more time. One more time. If I find myself saying, I am tired. I am exhausted. My life is chocked full of details. I don't have time for this. I need to be served. Well, then there's one way to get it. Enter a community where you serve. This year, In the next two or three weeks, we will be inundated by college students. Some of them are already back. Welcome back, you guys. Place is different when you're all here. Man, it's fun, but it's busy. And what I've asked for this week is that we would be a fundamentally different church. I've asked our staff if we could fill the atrium, the underpass, or whatever that is out there, the canopy, the patio, if we could fill the hallway, if we could fill the eastern end, fill the aisle, fill the classrooms, the altar if we have to, with people who are greeting one another. Now watch this. The tendency, if you come to a large church, is to say, I don't know anybody, so I'm gonna stand back, and I'll wait till somebody finds me. But watch what happens 95% of the time. When someone doesn't, we say, my goodness, I just cannot find somebody there that's friendly. Well, it's because the one another concept is you have to give to the other what you are most deficient in yourself. Yes? And in giving to the other, you get it. So we've asked, uh, or uh, I've asked uh, Ethan if he would just put together an army of people and they would come, you I hope, that will come alongside and just greet someone so when they come to church you don't just kind of hang in the back and say, or as college students often do, come in herds. (laughs) And kind of hang together, and then when it's over, say, while they're doing the altar, let's get out of here. It'd be better to just say, hey, you know what? We've got an extra 15 minutes. Let's hang around and meet people. I looked at the list after I draw this out, and you know what surprises me is this is precisely what happens in churches all across America. When people are frustrated in their churches, it's often because they say, I was in need, and nobody came for me when I had a need. Or they say, I go to church every Sunday and man, I'm just not getting fed. It's like over my head or it's way below my feet, but I'm just not getting enough content. I think I need to find a church where they can feed me. Or they will say, I've been going to that church now for six months and I can't find friendly people anywhere. But you see what's happening in all three instances? People are pulling out of deficiencies somebody else's energy into their own, trying to find it. And what we're hearing today from the New Testament is the way to find it is, of course, to give it back. And so in front of you, in the pew, there's a card that looks just like this. Would you grab it? Worked with the staff the last couple of weeks in putting this together this is an opportunity for you to respond in a moment in a moment we're going to come to the table communion and while we do this every month we don't always do it like this today when you come to the table to receive something from the Lord I would like you to bring something with you there's a basket In front of each one of these stations and I wish you'd take a moment right now perhaps and grab a pencil and if you would just give us your name and your contact information and you would check one of those three things and just say you know what I I am busy swamped I have a ton of stuff going on but I hear what you're saying I have to give even as I receive and put a check in the area where you think God Might most use you bring that with you and put it in the basket, would you please? And somebody will call you Somebody will call you This week and talk through what's the next step for you